Well, the Lord is a lifter of my head. I thank you for your prayers being raised up from illness last week. And I'm glad to have the strength and the stamina. Don't worry about my voice. It's just kind of settled there. We are, um, we are made for family. That's our topic this morning. That's a very broad topic. I'm intending to narrow it down quite a bit this morning. Uh, over the past several months, we've talked about the family. We've talked about husband-wife relationship. What I'd like to spoke, focus on this morning is the unique power of the family for evangelism and discipleship. I like to look at the role, especially the parents play, and the nurture and the drawing and the and the bringing of their children toward toward Christ. And uh, we're going to look at several verses this morning. So have your Bible's ready to kind of move about a bit. We'll be in the book of Psalms for several verses. But I do want to, uh, I do want to thank the Lord that, um, that he does use the family to bring little children to Christ. And I was one of those. My parents both became believers in their teens and raised us up, gave us the privilege of going to Christian school, which is where I found the Lord and the Lord found me. And so I'm very grateful for that. Before we begin this morning, let's, uh, let's pray together. Thank you, dear Father, for your, your goodness, your love to us, the way that you are the seeker of the lost, the Savior of all that come to you. Thank you, Father, for the beauty of childlike faith, no matter its age, that as we come and as your Spirit draws us and as you convict us of sin, that we come as little children humbly, broken, without anything to offer you, but fully resting upon your grace. Pray, Father, you help us to understand this morning what a great gift it is to have a Christian home in all its varied forms, but how you work even through the life of just one, one family member to be a sanctifying influence upon those that surround them. And we pray, Lord, we appreciate that. And also, our Father, we would heed your words as you, uh, you call the little children to come to you. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. The family, whether nuclear, extended, whether we talk about the mom, dad, whatever other compositions those are, whether we talk about extended family, the family is God's design and God's place for protection and nurture of vulnerable children. And we need to start with that. God's design from the beginning is, of course, one man plus one woman, and that equals a family. A husband and wife is a family. Even without kids, that's a family. And not every, every family is blessed to be expanded with children. But children are added to a husband and a wife, and this is called the expansion of the family. They're no more a family than they were before. They just have expanded, and God has now extended new responsibilities. Psalm 127 tells us that children are a gift. A better translation of that word is an assignment. God gives children, and we have some new, new parents, you have an assignment. God has given you a particular charge unique to everyone else in the world. He has entrusted to you vulnerable life, a spiritual soul. And your responsibility 
is to raise up, to protect that life and its vulnerabilities, to nurture it, to train it in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. <clears throat> this is, uh, believe it or not, this is a short-term goal. I know it doesn't seem like it when you're in the middle of it. It may seem very long, but I can tell you having uh, come, coming close to the end of uh, moving nine kids towards the exit of our house, it has gone in a blink. And some of our kids are already established their own homes. And you have so little time, really. You'd be amazed how little time you have to make that mark. But I want to encourage you just the same to make that mark. The composition of the family, and of course we know there are lots of different forms of family. It would be great to have a husband and a wife, children, and that is not always how it turns out. It's not the composition of the family that's as important as the consecration of the family. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 14 says that even if there's just one member of the family who has a, relationship, a vital relationship with Christ, they sanctify the rest of the members of the family. They set apart for God's special attention those other members. And I've seen this work through church. I grew up many single moms, many moms whose husbands never came to Christ. And yet the power of God working through that one mom, touching her children, touching her grandchildren, has had a powerful effect in their lives. The truth is every family is marked by some level of dysfunction because every family has a sin dynamic at work. Doesn't matter if you have the classic, you know, nuclear family. Guess what? Those parents, you're sinners. I'm sinner. I blow it. As parents, we blow it. We don't get it right. And thank God there's grace for that. But since there are no perfect parents, whether there are two or only one or others, parents... Families need to be a part of a covenant community where there's accountability and where there's mentorship from older men and older women as described in Titus chapter 2. Look, young people, um, you know, we're not going to force ourselves on you, but hopefully you think that people with us with the gray hairs have done some things and raised some kids, we've got something to offer. We should be open to that, you know, gray-haired people, people that have raised kids. We need to be a resource to people. There's no reason for people to repeat our mistakes. <laughs> and I'll be glad to tell you mine. And uh, we'll talk about even some of those in this message. But the Bible, the Bible says that the, the covenant community is a place of encouragement, a, a place to build one another up, a place to, uh, to pass along wisdom and lessons learned. And we should be generous with one another in that way. God's goal, as we find in Deuteronomy chapter 6, if you turn there, Deuteronomy chapter 6, we're going to see that God's goal is that he wants parents to speak up. He wants parents to speak up. You know, we've all heard about the taciturn father, the guy that doesn't have many words to say. Look, this is not an option. The Bible commands us all the way back to the example we give to Israel, that, uh, that the Shema of, of, uh, <clears throat> of um, Deuteronomy chapter 6. Now, this is a commandment, the statutes, the judgments, which the Lord your God has commanded me to teach you, that you might do them where you're going over to possess it. 
so that your son and your grandson might fear the Lord your God to keep all his statutes and his commandments, which I commandment, command you all the days of your life, yet your days may be prolonged. O Israel, you should listen and be careful to do it, that it may be well with you, and that you may multiply greatly, just as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you a land flowing with milk and honey. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, and the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with your soul and with your, all your might. And these words which I am commanding to you today shall be on your heart. And you shall teach them diligently to your sons. And shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. God wants his glory expounded. God wants us to speak of who he is. I mean, how else do ignorant children, people that come into this world without any context of God, how do they come to him? Well, it's up to the adults to speak up, to share the commandments of God, to instill the fear of God, which is the ever-present knowledge that God is watching what we do, and he'll bring every act into judgment, Ecclesiastes chapter 12. We need to instill that sense into our kids. That even though mom's not there, even though dad doesn't see you, God sees you. And God knows what you're doing. That's a wonderful thing to inculcate to your kids. The sense that there is a presence of God. And, and yes, in, in some sense, that is a little fearful. And there should be a sense of respect that God is a God of righteousness and God of truth. And that he has commandments for us to obey. Turn as well, you'll see this emphasized that God wants his renown known. Psalm 22, verse 30 and 31. Posterity will serve him. It will be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They will come and declare his righteousness to a people who will be born that he has performed it. Psalm 78, verses 4 to 6. We will not conceal them from our children. But tell to the generation to come the praises of the Lord and his strength and his wondrous works that he has done. For he has established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers that they should teach them to their children, that the generation to come might know, even the children yet to be born, that they may arise and tell them to their children." You see the multiple generations God wants to hand down, hand down, hand down his marvelous works that they be repeated again and again and again. Psalm 102, verse 18. This will be written for the generation to come that a people yet to be created may praise the Lord. God wants his renown expounded to the generations. And it's up to us adults to speak up, to tell these things. Do you have regular times where you remind your kids of who God is and how he's been at work in your family? The prayers he's answered, the miraculous things he's even done. We've got stories like that being being a pastor for many years, lots of uh, challenges, lots of um, sacrifices, amazing ways God provided, vehicles. He, he caused 
the heart of somebody to be moved to just give generously so our family could have a vehicle in an affordable way. You see, this is also continued in the Gospels. In Mark chapter 10, if you turn there, this is our, our, our key passage this morning we'll look at. Mark chapter 10, and if you recall some months ago, I talked about the commands of Christ. This is a command on child evangelism. We have, we have imperatives spoken by the Lord to his disciples in which we find them kind of expanded upon even as they're lived out in the early church. But um, in Mark chapter 10, verse 13, it says, and they were bringing, that is the parents of the multitude that were following after Jesus and listening to his teaching. And they were bringing children to him so that he might touch them. And the disciples rebuked them. Let's stop right there and stop a minute. The disciples, the followers of Jesus, who have been with him for, this is now, by Luke's chronology, we're only two to three weeks away from the crucifixion. This is late in the ministry. These disciples have seen little children everywhere. They've seen them gathered as families at the feeding of the 5,000. They've seen them along the shore of the Sea of Galilee. These kids are running around, and they're like a magnet to Jesus. And what did they miss? What happened here? They rebuked them. You see, this is what I call the entourage effect. It's that conferred sense of importance. By hanging around somebody important, you now think that you're important. And they think they're doing a good service by just holding these kids who are just being annoying, maybe being loud, being disruptive. They're holding them away. And they're rebuking the parents and saying, keep your kids away. Startling, isn't it? To think that these men would do this. The disciples once again missed the mission. That when Jesus came to seek and to save the lost, he was talking about lost children too. Not just adults. Not just people that were infirmed and needed healed. But little children whose souls were, were open and ardent and willing to come. So is it true? See, what's worse here is that their training is almost over, as I said. They're only a couple weeks away from the crucifixion. As a matter of fact, in another parallel passage, shortly right after this, this, this scenario, Jesus pulls the disciples aside and he says, listen, we're going to Jerusalem I'm going to be betrayed of men, I'm going to be handed over, and I'm going to be killed. He's predicting his death. This is how close we are to the end of his ministry with the disciples, and they still haven't got it. I thank God for churches like this one, churches I grew up in, where there's investment to children. There's ministry, there's VBS, there's Sunday school, and a wonderful thing to have teachers that pour their life into kids and open the word of God to them and respect their spirit to receive it. We'll see Jesus' reaction here. And when Jesus saw this, he was indignant. This is a strong word. It's a very strong word. He was offended. 
He was incensed. He was irate. He was ticked off at his own disciples. Why? Because children matter to Jesus. And he gives two commands. First, the positive. Permit the children to come to me. Permit the children to come to me. This is a present active imperative. It has the idea that Jesus' arms are always open. As many will come, as often as they'll come, let them keep coming to me, coming to me, coming to me. Jesus loves little children. The second command is, do not hinder them. Do not hinder them. This is an aorist active imperative and has the idea of bring this to a stop. There's an urgency to my words. Don't, Don't prevent them. Don't withhold them. Don't deny them access is the sense of it all. Again, as we read this passage, it may seem startling to think that this was actually what was going on between Jesus' disciples and these parents and these families. But so it was. Jesus says, the composition of the kingdom belongs to such as these. The idea is that, yes, children can come into the kingdom. And they do, thank God they do. And we're going to... We're going to see how they do here by the end of this message. But the fact is, the gates are wide for kids as well. Maybe even wider, because they have just such an innocent, childlike faith. They hear the gospel. They have their own sense of of frailty and sinfulness, and they know they've done wrong in their hearts. They can believe. They can receive the gospel. There's an implication here for all of us. That is that children can't show us the way. Jesus says, even a little child shall lead them. Sometimes it's the smallness of the faith which has the greatest of the impact. We see kids that are just willing to just be all there for God, to lay their prayers out, to lay their burdens out, to believe God for things, they show us the way. The traits of a child are humble and trusting, dependent, and having nothing to lay claim to. How blessed it is as adults if we can be in that place as well. To be humble, to be trusting, to take God at his word, to be dependent upon him, to realize that we don't have anything to lay claim to in spite of all that we have accumulated and things that we've learned and things we've accomplished, really we just need to lead on Jesus. See, <clears throat> the important thing about this message that I want you to understand this morning is that the home is, is a God-designed dynamic for evangelism and discipleship. In other words, If I'm discipling somebody, I lead somebody to Christ, the best environment I could possibly have to pass along my faith to them will be to invite them to come live in my house. And some people are called to do that. 
and we've had people live in our house before, and it's a tremendous, powerful dynamic. Why? Because somebody can see you all the time. You're not just putting on some kind of front for an hour on a, a Bible study. They see you when you fail. They see you when you blow it. They see you when you ask forgiveness. And so it is with our kids. We can't be any more real than we are in our own homes, can we? There's no putting any faces on. There's no faking anybody out. If I blow it with my kids, I need to humbly come and say, you know what? I blew it. Would you forgive me? Can we be right? That's authentic Christianity. That's discipleship. And the thing of it is, we have the opportunity to evangelize our kids by following what Galatians says. Galatians says the law becomes the tutor that leads us to Christ. And so one of the good things that we get to do as parents is we get to set up standards and rules. And those are good things. Those are boundaries for protection and provision just as God does for us. But the other thing it does is when that child fails and breaks the rule, we need to encourage a sensitive conscience to right and to wrong. You see, it's in the course of finding out that we can't keep the law, that we come to the one who's fulfilled the law completely, who's paid the price for our sin, who says, you don't have to be perfect. I'll impart my perfection to you through the gospel. Now, little kids understand that. My kids have understood that. They understood that, man, I'm having a hard time, Dad, doing the right thing. I know, son. I know, daughter. You don't have the Spirit of God yet. You can't obey God well without an indwelling Spirit. You have the opportunity to come and make salvation yours for yourself. To trust in Jesus alone for your salvation and the forgiveness of your sins. We need to exalt the law in the young, younger ages of our kids so that they come to understand that they can't keep it on their own. They can't keep it on their own. Let me ask you this question as well. The dynamic of discipleship, as I said, is great, it's the show and tell method. It's when we rise up and when we lie down, when we walk in the way and we sit alongside, when we have meals together. Do you have testimonies? Do you have living, breathing experiences between you and your God that you pass to your kids and you revel in with them? They need to hear those stories. Do they know how you became a believer? Do they know where your struggles are? Do they know how you've gained victory in some of those struggles? All these things give hope. They make, they make the gospel real to our children. They make it attractive. They make it something that they want to have for themselves. Third, when your child trusts Christ, honor their spirit in dwelling. 
I know it's, I know sometimes we think, well, our kids, they just, they're too young, they can't understand. But I want to part and remind you of a principle. That when any individual, no matter five years old, 10 years old, 15 years old, when any individual puts their place, puts their faith and trust in Jesus Christ and they become a living being, the Spirit of God indwells them. It doesn't wait till they become adults. At that moment of salvation, they're indwelt. Honor the fact that the Holy Spirit now resides within your child. And appeal to the Holy Spirit within them to call them to obedience, to call them to their own personal walk, to educate and train them to, how, to have a walk personally with God, even from the youngest ages. It's possible. I've seen it happen. I've seen, I've seen the beauty of seeing my own kids take their own Bible and make it their own and read it and apply it and pray out to God. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing. And we should not think of them as so dependent that they always need us for everything spiritual. They do need us for many things. But our goal should be encouraging them to be dependent upon Jesus Christ as their Lord, to follow hard after him. Can I get a witness here? I want to ask this question, if you will. If you were saved before the age of 20, would you stand up? Look around. Look around. This is the majority of the people in this room have come to Christ in the fertile years before they've gotten screwed up with lots of sins and they have come and they've known the scripture that made them wise to salvation. Thank you, baby, seated. Now, I just want to ask you to shout out what youth ministry or Sunday school or ministry had an effect on your growth as a disciple of Christ as a young person. Mine was Awana's. I don't know if you, anybody know what Awana is? Yeah, I was in Awana's. And I was memorizing the Bible before I even became a believer. And it was a wonderful thing to have built down into, into the inside of me. To memorize large passages of the scripture. Somebody else, where, where were you ministered to as a, as a youth? Sunday school. Sunday school, wonderful. What else? Lifeline, great. What else? Vacation Bible School, fantastic. I know, I know we did the Ten Commandments. Am I right? We did the Ten Commandments, great. We're establishing the law again, raising up and exalting the law of God and the conscience of our children. What else? Christian Radio, fantastic. Anybody in Youth for Christ or um, Young Life or... Uh, a youth group, I mean, lots and lots of places, and thank God, because let me just emphasize this, as much as God has put responsibility on parents, he also puts it on the local church. I have two principles that I kind of, I think about when it comes to this obedience to this command to let children come to Christ. 
The first is the fourth wall. You have the three walls of your house, but you have the fourth wall that's attached to the church. And you should be taking advantage of it. Whatever we do as parents to disciple our children, we won't do it all. We don't have all the gifts. And there are other godly people that you need to release your kids to in the local body of believers who will care for them, who will mentor them, who will have an influence in their life. And we should be open-handed as parents towards those gifted and mature believers. And the other principle is the empty chair. My mom was a, a wonderful practitioner to this. My wife as well, that we had an empty chair in our, our family. It was hard because we started to fill them up a lot. But the empty chair was a reminder that, that God wants to allow other people into our family, that this is not a fortress to keep people out. It's a place where there's an open door for the, for the forgotten person, for the person who's marginalized, for the person who doesn't really have a good family. And I'll tell you a story about, very quickly, about one of my very best friends. His name is John. When he was eight years old, uh, another friend of mine, we went to the same church. They're out playing football in, the, in, the, in Mike's backyard. And Mike had been to VBS and learned how to share the gospel story. And he led John, his friend, to Christ at eight years old. Two years later, John's dad died of cancer. His family went into a tailspin. But John became very involved in our Awana group. He began to learn the Bible. He had a very keen mind, memorized many passages, passed all, all the books as far as I know, um, six, six books of, um, of large memory sections. And John became a fixture in church, just a little young guy, 10, 11 years old. And people would pick him up, take him to church. We ended up moving just a half a mile away. Many times we would take him to church, take him to Awana. And John grew in wisdom and stature and favor with God and men. And he hung on to the Bible. All the rest of his family, they just kind of went their own way. The grief kind of screwed his mom up. His, his sisters went off the rails and John held tight to Jesus Christ. He eventually was called to go to Bible college. He went to Baptist Bible College. During that time, he's a year younger than I. We were close friends, but I was walking away from the Lord at the time. And John, God put it on his heart to start to write me letters. And faithfully, Every two, three weeks, I get a letter, and he'd tell me what he's learning in his classes. He'd tell me what he's learning in this dorm study in the books of First and Second Timothy about what it means to be a man of God. And God's call had been on my life, and John's letters began to penetrate and break me. And God used those letters to bring me back to Christ, to put me on a path to go into ministry. John was the best man at my wedding, he became a Christian school teacher, and for a short time we shared staff ministry responsibilities together at the same church. Had wonderful fellowship. He ended up leaving Baptist Bible College and coming to the college where I went, Washington Bible College. We used to commute. We used to listen to hymns and sing on the way, sitting in the traffic on Route 50. What a 
terrible place. <laughs> I tell you that story because that's, that's one person that families reached out to, that a church reached out to, that God used in my life, and he's continued to use John in many ways. He has 10 biological children, two adopted children. He's just a humble man who's a tradesman, goes about his business, working as unto the Lord every day, ready with an answer to anyone who asks him for the hope that lies within him. Special friend to me. And that's the power of a person who takes an interest in a child, of a church that ministers and builds into the life of a child. God, help us to continue as a congregation to do that, to permit the children to come to Jesus, to not hinder them. Let's pray. Thank you, dear Father, for your faithfulness. I thank you for John. I thank you for your hand upon him and how you used him to touch so many people, to teach so many people, to disciple people, to raise up his own kids in the fear of the Lord. Especially, Lord, to look back and how he, he exhorted me. He, he took notice of me, cared for me. Thank you, Lord, for the many blessings of the churches I've been in, the way that they've reached out, they sacrificed, they spent money, on children's ministries. They brought busloads of kids in from all around the neighborhoods to hear the gospel. Pray your blessing upon them. Pray your blessing upon this congregation. We continue to pursue bringing children into relationship with Lord Jesus Christ. Just thank you for the numbers of people that stood up here that show how important it is to make a wide access between you, the Lord Jesus, and little children who will come. I pray these things in Christ's name.